0: Hello, Hope Church family. I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue through the Sermon on the Mount. But I'm also going to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 23 because that is where we will be wrapping things up this evening. So Matthew chapter 5 as we continue through the Sermon on the Mount. In the last two weeks, we talked about salt and light. Before that, we talked about the Beatitudes. And so starting this week for the next couple weeks as we work our way through it, we are just simply calling this a heart check. Uh, Jesus is, is challenging the hearts of his audience as he challenges your heart and as he challenges my heart. And so we are moving into this area of heart check. And what we're going to see through this passage, we're going to be in, uh, starting in verse 17 through verse 20, is Jesus is helping them understand that he has come to fulfill the law fulfill the what we know as the Old Testament law. Now, at this point, Jesus would have been shocking his audience. They would have been in complete surprise because what Jesus was teaching, uh, was, we talked about from the beginning, that Jesus sat down, which was a position of authority, that Jesus was known to, to teach with authority, that most of the uh, teachers, the um, the, pro- the Pharisees and the scribes who would have been, uh, the scribes are called the teachers of the law. They wouldn't have even taught with the type of authority that Jesus positioned himself with. And so he's viewed, although he is humble and he is meek and he is a servant, he's viewed as almost a sense of pride to him because of the authority that he speaks with. However, it wasn't viewed as pride. It was viewed as something different. It was viewed as something special, something unique. Now, in this passage, he's going to be explaining that he has come to fulfill the law, which sounds simple, but is actually quite extravagant. and It is actually something that a lot of New Testament authors spend time trying to explain to their audience. Of course, Jesus does it in four, what we know is four verses. But Jesus is showing how he directly ties into, again, what we know as the Old Testament they would have known it as their scriptures. Uh, we now call it the Old Testament, which isn't really fair because it's just as for today as the New Testament. But Jesus is explaining the, its continued relevance as, ex, as opposed to its expulsion, that the Old Testament is extremely important for them. And this would have been shocking to them because they're thinking that Jesus is going to introduce something new. And what he's saying, even in just this short amount of 16 verses we've covered so far, is shocking and out of the ordinary. And it's almost like he's going to introduce something new. And so how he ties it together uh, was surprising. Now, what Jesus was saying, and and he continues building upon, uh, would have been contrary to what the culture surrounding them would have been saying. And when I say culture, there's two aspects. When we're talking about Uh, this time in history, there's two aspects to the culture. There is the uh, Jewish culture that they are part of and where they live here in Galilee or continuing down to Jerusalem, Judea, uh, that would have been very influential. Again, they have the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They almost have their own ruling system within the Roman ruling system. And the second part would have been this Greco-Roman culture. And so spiritually, the Jewish leaders were more concerned about their appearance, they were more concerned about how they were doing keeping the laws and keeping their traditions and maintaining themselves as a people uh, than there was any concern about heart worship. In fact, the Pharisees, who presented themselves as these uh, special ops of the religious world, if you will, uh, they would have said that it's okay to think, it's okay to hate somebody, as long as you don't act on it. It's okay to lust after somebody, uh, as long as you don't act upon it. So it was more concerned about their appearance, it was more concerned about the tradition, it was more concerned about keeping the law and this outward appearance than it was of what was going on in the heart. The Greco-Roman way of life was all about strength and self-promotion. How are you moving ahead? You know, where is your citizen? Do you have citizenship? Uh, Where are you from? There was so many aspects, and so both of these cultures collide, and you have Jesus, who is totally different than both. He's preaching meekness, poor in spirit, salt and light. He's preaching these aspects that were not respected or not desired for people of that time, but yet here's Jesus living them out and speaking with authority. We also see that Jesus, he starts the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes where he says, uh, blessed are the, and that's how he starts, and it's this third-person type view. And then he moves into the salt and the light, and he says, you are to be salt and light, and he moves into this second person. And as we read through this passage, you will see he says, Truly I tell you, truly is a version of the word amen. Amen means so be it. And so when he starts off by saying so be it, he is representing a God-given authority that was very honored and very uh, feared to use. But here is Jesus using this ultimate view of authority from God, giving them a command in this first person. This would have been shocking to the people because again, they view the scribes and Pharisees as this special forces of religion, if you will. They view them as this upper echelon. Now, as we've been going through this series, I keep saying what Jesus is saying isn't for an upper echelon of Christian. It is not for the uh, spiritually elite. It is for everyone who calls themselves a disciple of Jesus. And so when Jesus is explaining this to them, he is really trying to get it through to their heads that this is for you. If you are a disciple of me, this is how you are expected to live. And even though he's repeating this over and over, they're hearing it. Well, this is good for them. This is good for the other people. So let's jump into the passage and hopefully all of this setup makes sense as we read through. Starting in verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. There's two words that really stand out, and that is the word abolish and the word fulfilled. And this goes back to the people thinking that Jesus is coming and he's abolishing what they have known all their lives, what their ancestors have known, and that is the law and the prophets. And Jesus is telling him, I'm not coming to abolish these, I'm coming to fulfill these. But Jesus' teaching was so radical compared to the scribes and Pharisees that people would have thought that he was proclaiming something new when he was actually just declaring what had always been true, but doing it through a clearer and more focused lens. The kind of view that only the original artist or author could have of his work. Uh, Several years ago my brother was in college and he was uh, in a theater school and he invited us out for the seniors presentation. It wasn't my brother's senior presentation but another one. And it was this short play and it starts out with a uh, artist coming out in an artist gallery and he hangs his picture. Now as the crowd you can't actually see what the picture is because you're looking through it. This is an empty frame. But then another man walks into this gallery and he starts to observe and another man comes in from the entrance side and they start discussing this beautiful work of art and they're both fans of this artist and uh, one thing leads to another and they think they're getting along great but all of a sudden the one person says, oh I love how he did this. And The other gentleman goes, no that's not what that means. He obviously did it for this reason. And it just escalates more and more and they disagree on it more because they're both viewing the same picture differently. They're viewing the same art differently. And it gets to the point of the one guy, no, those are tanks and they're throwing missiles. And the other guy goes, no, those are are fields of wheat. And they get so angry that they leave. And the artist walks back into the gallery, looks at the picture, realizes he hung it upside down, (laughs) turns it around, and then leaves again. And that's kind of how I view this. Jesus is coming in and he's giving them a clearer view of what has always been true. The entire law and prophets, the entire Old Testament was Jesus. It was pointing to Jesus. It was all about Jesus and what Jesus is helping them understand as only the author of life, as only the artist from creation can do is helping them get a clearer picture through the lens of who he is. The law served as a purpose, almost like a, a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. We have the caterpillar that goes into this cocoon and it comes out a butterfly. and That is what this, this law and the prophets, that is what this law was. It was this caterpillar getting ready to go into a cocoon of now Jesus is here at earth and would come out a butterfly. It was the same thing, just to point, one points to the other. So if you're taking notes, point number one is this, Jesus fulfilled the law. We see that in verse 17 and 18, read again with me. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. That law and prophets is very important to understand why Jesus says that. One, it wasn't called the Old Testament then. It was called the scriptures. But the Law and the Prophets Jesus uses very specifically, because what the Pharisees had done, what the scribes or the teachers of the law had done, is they had added so many things to the actual law. The law wasn't good enough. And even though there was 365 negative commands in the law and 260, not good with numbers, plus of positive they took the 365 negative one for each day of the week and they then added or day of the year and then they added to the laws as if they weren't good enough they wrote their own laws and we see this happen throughout we're gonna see it in Matthew when they say uh, Jesus you can't heal people on the Sabbath that's against the law now again it's crazy because they're telling the person who gave the law what the law means and Jesus then Questions them back. Uh, they see the disciples pick, plucking uh, kernels of wheat off kernels of wheat as they're walking through a field. They say, "Oh, you can't do that." Now, here's the crazy part: some of the laws that they had actually put in there was if somebody is sick on the Sabbath, the doctor could make sure they weren't going to die, but couldn't actually do anything to really fix them until the Sabbath was over. And they had added so many laws like this. They, there was large discussions and writings in history of whether a mother could actually hold a baby on the Sabbath. Is that considered work or not? And so they've added so many other laws to the laws that Jesus is bringing them back to the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. Again, Jesus knows why he wrote the law. And they're arguing with him, because it doesn't match up with what they wanted. It doesn't match up with what they believed. So Jesus didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. That law and the prophets would have been specifically what Moses wrote, not what man wrote. The prophets, Jesus says, I came to fulfill the prophets. The prophets were always writing about the Messiah, the one, the Christ that would come and save Israel. So when he says, I came to fulfill them, he's saying everything that was in the law pointed to me, everything the prophets told you about pointed to me. So I'm here to fulfill these, not what you've written, not what tradition has passed down, but what God has given to you. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 through 17, the passage we read last week says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And again, when Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, he wasn't talking about what we know as the New Testament. He was talking about all Scripture. So I want to make it very clear that what Jesus is saying is here is that the law and the prophets the history that we have recorded and what now we know as the Old Testament is extremely vital to us even today, that that was never going to pass away. When he talks about the least stroke of a pen, or the smallest letter. He was very specifically talking about, maybe a version will actually say uh, one jot or tittle or iota, but they're very specific parts of the Hebrew language that he's mentioning that if just taken away, what we would know as a comma or a dot on an eye, if just those little things are taken away from the law, uh, it will never happen. It won't become to fulfillment. That Jesus was there, every letter, every stroke of the pen, that is what Jesus came to fulfill. And it would always serve a purpose, which is what Paul is writing Timothy about as well. So understand that the Old Testament is so important to us today. Um, now, we cannot change scripture to comply with the world. And unfortunately, this has always been a trend. I was in a coffee shop a couple of years ago and was asked by somebody, uh, who I knew, and I was had my Bible open studying, and they said, oh, you use the Bible? I was like, well, yeah, and I'm, this friend doesn't know the Lord. And he said, really? I thought you guys were more of like a modern church. I thought you would have been like more with the times. I said, well, that's the interesting thing about the Bible, is it transcends cultures and times, and it is eternal and will last forever. And unfortunately, that's a view that several people have made. Leading pastors have said that the Old Testament is no longer necessary, nor do they ever preach from it, or or use it in any of their studies, which is so disheartening and sad. And sin. But we cannot change Scripture to comply with the world. It's not that the Word of God doesn't work in today's world, it's that today's world doesn't match up with God's Word. It never has, and it never will. The only time that the culture of the day matched up with What God wanted was before Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. And the only time that it will ever match up again in the future is after Jesus returns and now brings his kingdom here on earth in a new heaven and new earth. Only at those two times will God's word match up with what the world wants. It's why James repeatedly tells us, or the entire New Testament tells us, you are no longer of this world. A friend with the world is an enemy of God. They are at war with each other. More than that, Jesus is the Word. Jesus isn't a theme in the Old Testament. Jesus is the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus is the New Testament. I love John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So when we use the word of God, and going back to the Second Timothy passage, it says, all scripture is God-breathed, meaning it's an exhale of God, that all scripture is Jesus. Uh, It's not that this is a book, but this is the very copy, the, the telling of who Jesus really is. All scripture is Jesus. It is Jesus telling us about himself. And again, going back to Matthew five eighteen, it says, nothing is to be changed. Jesus didn't change anything, he fulfilled everything. Jesus didn't change anything, he fulfilled everything. Jesus is the Old Testament. To diminish the Old Testament in any way is to diminish Christ himself. To say it's not important is wrong, and I can't emphasize that enough. And I'm spending time on this because it's going to play into the rest of what we have to talk about. Now, there are really, there are, of the law of Moses and the law of the prophets, it can really be broken down into three types of law. So if you're taking notes, feel free to jot these down. There is the moral law, there was the judicial law, and there was the ceremonial law. And again, these are one of those things I would love to talk to you more in depth about at any time. Uh, But... The moral law was God's foundational code. This is for how you were to live morally. And I'm going to use the Sabbath as an example of that. Uh, The Sabbath, when it was created and what the law said, and again, you're going to see an immediate contradiction of what I just said with them adding laws to the Sabbath. The Sabbath was to be for a day solely set apart for observing holiness, not abstaining from work. Jesus fulfilled and became all righteousness for us so the observance of taking a Sabbath day is no longer required. Jesus became that holiness for us. Jesus was that holiness so that now we can be considered holy because of what Christ did. So again, it wasn't that he abolished the Sabbath. He fulfilled the Sabbath. I always find it interesting how people use the Sabbath now. It's like, well, I'm just going to take a Sabbath. You know, it was nice. I took a I just needed a day and so I just, you know, binged on Netflix and I, you know, I went to the beach with a bunch of friends and it was just nice to have a Sabbath. Like, okay, so that's not a Sabbath day. That's a day off. That's a day off where you enjoy the stuff that you want to enjoy. You are not observing holiness. Uh, You are not spending the day just focusing solely on who God is as it was meant in the law, but also Christ fulfilled that day. What that means now is that we can live holiness for god at all times there isn't one special day Uh, there is every day of the week every waking hour we are to live in observance of the holiness of christ and we are to become holy as he is holy to represent his kingdom here on earth so it sounds like he's abolishing it but really he's presenting it in a much bigger picture Uh, the second type of law was the judicial law and that, the judicial law was given to provide a unique identity for Israel as a nation that belonged to Jehovah, a God, the God of all things, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And that way that the Israelites lived, and so many, and again, if you've been doing the uh, script read through the scripture app, some of you are still in Leviticus, so you understand fully what that is. There's people in the room nodding their heads, so that's why I'm laughing. But you understand fully um, what that is when they talk about this judicial law. They, they lived separately and there's laws about uh, fields and uh, what's clean and what's unclean. There's how to settle arguments between people. And there's so many laws that were the judicial law. And these were all to demonstrate God's people as different from the rest of the world. And Jesus' crucifixion marked Israel's final rejection of its Messiah. And now those who believe in Jesus, Jew or Gentile, are now God's chosen people. We are now set apart by the blood of Christ and are to still live differently by representing Jesus in this upside down kingdom. This created massive problems for this New Testament church. In fact, So much of the New Testament comes into a fuller view when you understand and study the Old Testament. Uh, The Book of Romans was written solely because of this problem, or one of the reasons it was written was this problem in Rome. The Jews were kicked out of Rome and the church was established there without any Jewish presence. So when the Jews were allowed back into Rome, there's this church and this created problems. So Paul, a former Pharisee and teacher of the law, is now writing the Book of Romans to explain to them how they are now One, because Jews had a very hard time understanding that Israel was no longer God's chosen people. Now, again, I believe that Israel is God's chosen people and they will be redeemed in then times, but that for this time it was opened up. And it's what so many of the prophets said would happen, that Jesus, the Messiah, would offer up salvation to all people and all nations throughout Isaiah and Jeremiah and several of the other prophets. Again, Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets. And so they're having a very difficult time coming to an understanding that a Gentile who accepts Christ as their savior makes Jesus the forgiver of their sins and leader of the life is just as much of a co-heir as them. So the book of Galatians the second part of Ephesians chapter two, the entire book of Hebrews, uh, parts of first and second Peter. There are so many parts of the New Testament that are explaining, because both the Jews and the Gentiles were having this very difficult time, how two different entities who are always at strife with each other have now become one. Why? Because the judicial law was fulfilled in Christ, meaning that things who were once at battle and at odds against each other have now become one because of the blood of Christ. The law was fulfilled. And the third was the ceremonial law. Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law. Most of the ceremonies that you see told to uh, be celebrated and so many of the things around the ceremony was around sacrifice. Sacrifice was the center of worshiping God under the law. There was everything. Every type of, it seems, animal except the unclean that would always be shown as a sacrifice to God. But understand, sacrifices never actually forgave sins. It was just the outward actions of those who had faith in God and acted in obedience. Jesus became the ultimate and perfect sacrifice for us. For you and for me. He fulfilled all the law's requirements of sacrifice for us. So now we no longer need to make sacrifices. But rather offer everything to him as a living sacrifice. As we've preached at length in Romans 12, 1 and 2. We're going to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Everything we have. All of our resources. Our talents and our abilities and our gifts. They are all to be presented back to God at all times. Presenting our life to him to be used for his glory. So Jesus not only fulfills these laws, but he also fulfills the roles of prophet and priest and king that the Old Testament talks about. So everything that we see in the Old Testament and the different people and positions the people wanted a king, that they wanted an earthly king. Well, Jesus now has become the king of his kingdom, this upside down kingdom for you and for me. Jesus was the ultimate prophet. Jesus has become the priest and he has given us an individual priesthood. We no longer need a priest to make the sacrifice for us. That only a priest can go into the Holy of Holies because of the Holy Spirit has been open to everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. The law of Moses told of the worship that was due him. The prophets told of who Jesus would be and what he would bring. And when Jesus lived, died, and rose again, these laws and prophecies were met. Not abolished, but satisfied. John MacArthur says the law only pointed to righteousness, but Christ gave us righteousness, his own righteousness. So, Point number two, Jesus provides the righteousness that he requires. Jesus provides the righteousness He requires. Look at verses 19 and 20. Again, verse 19 starts off with, therefore, therefore, because I have come to fulfill the law, not abolish it, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And the crowd gasped. (sighs) What do you mean surpass the righteousness of the law or the uh, lawgivers or the scribes and the Pharisees? Understand the religious leaders held themselves to a higher standard than what was originally asked for by the law, as I've explained. This created a hierarchy that God never intended and created serious problems in the people that claim to represent God. The Jews had a saying that if only two people are allowed to enter heaven, one will be a Pharisee and one will be a scribe. So the very thought of having to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes that would have been overwhelming. That would have been confusing. How do I, a regular Joe, or a regular Yeshua, how do I, that's a Hebrew for Joshua, how do I become more righteous than the Pharisees and the scribes who've dedicated their whole life, not just to knowing the old ta- the, the law, but also all the laws that they've written themselves? who present themselves as perfect and above everybody. I can't surpass that. You see, Jesus wants your heart and mind, not outward actions and a proper appearance. Jesus wants your heart and mind, not outward actions and a proper appearance. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes, they thought they represented everything right, and Jesus explains that that was the problem. Jesus' disciples are called to a different kind and and quality of righteousness, not an increased quantity of righteousness. Righteousness belongs in the realm of grace. Jesus' proclamation of good news is that the kingdom of heaven is now available to those who respond to him. God's saving activity has arrived on the earthly scene to deliver his people and this will produce a radical change in their lives. The radical change starts in the heart and mind and works its way out. When we go back to Romans 12, 1 and 2, and we talk about this transformation, not becoming what the outside wants, but rather allowing God and the Holy Spirit to work in our own hearts and lives, and the transformation starts inside and works its way out. This this legalism, this tradition this appearance of being worried about your appearance are detrimental and do not lead to righteousness they lead to death an author wrote the law was never intended to be a means of salvation the law provides no grace mercy or forgiveness it has no power to enable the sinner to be righteousness its purpose was to reveal god's holy pure standard and drive exposed sinners to the Savior. But to those who rely on it for salvation, the law has a ministry of death. 2 Corinthians 3, 7. So Jesus is standing in stark contrast of the Pharisees and of the scribes. And I want to jump ahead to what would eventually, this conversation that happens with these Pharisees and scribes. That's why I had you put your finger in Matthew 23, starting in verse 13. I want you to see this is Jesus, and we'll get to this maybe in five or eight years when we get to Matthew chapter 23. But this is a view of how Jesus views the Pharisees. Again, they viewed themselves very well. But this is how Jesus views them. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides. Anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the, most, the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar truly i tell you all this will come on this generation jerusalem jerusalem you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you how often i have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing look your house is left to you desolate for i tell you you will not see me again until you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord this passage is attacking the very heart Of the Pharisees and the scribes everything that they have put their faith in their good works Jesus saying is not only not good enough but you are leading others astray as well so much of this passage Jesus is saying just before I think it's the last trip he takes to Jerusalem before he enters and they're saying blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord and then a week later he is crucified But this prophecy that he makes here, Jerusalem, you have rejected me. How I wanted to gather you together like a mother hen collecting its chicks, but you have rejected me. And he makes the prophecy. Now, again, they think that Jerusalem will stand forever, but in AD 70, the general Titus of the Romans completely destroys the temple, completely destroys Jerusalem. And the temple has, to this day, never been rebuilt. There has never been another uh, sacrifice made on that altar. Why? Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. Jesus was exactly who he said he was. Now, if you're watching this, more than likely you say, yeah, I agree, I don't understand the problem here. But we tend to do the exact same thing. We tend to put a picture on Jesus that he actually isn't. We tend to picture the Messiah as how we want the Messiah to be, not in what he commanded us to be. We tend to add extra things to what we are told to do. We, we make our own rules and regulations and we have our own standard of conduct and although it might never even be written down, we hold to it and we expect other people to as well. We hold people to expectations that we may have never actually told them about. Maybe we're concerned about how we appear. I love how Jesus tells them, you whitewash tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but inside you are full of unclean, rotting bones. I love that Jesus demonstrates why he came to earth. You see, part of the law was not to touch anything unclean, not to touch anything diseased, not to touch anything that was uh, wrong. But what does Jesus do when he comes to earth? He goes to the unclean. And what Jesus touches becomes clean. When we see Jesus perform miracle after miracle after miracle, he's demonstrating that he changes things. That he, what some people call unclean, Jesus has made clean. Maybe you're watching this and you're thinking, I am that tomb. Well, Jesus has the ability, because of his power, to take what is unclean, those rotting bones, and make clean, and make a new person, and make a new creation, if you call on him. Which brings us to the third part, the application. So if you're taking notes, what it means for us that Jesus fulfilled the law. Here's the thought that hit me this week. We were given freedom from the law to do more for Christ. But we tend to use this freedom to do less. Jesus came and he fulfilled the law, so we are no longer held to these um, ceremonial sacrifices and these judicial laws, but now we are free to go throughout the entire world. And I love Paul's example. He uses his Roman citizenship to go. He uses his Roman citizenship to proclaim the gospel. He uses the freedom that he has. Now remember, Paul was a Pharisee. Paul knew the law and lived to the the law and all the additional laws, this was Paul. And Paul tried to prove his his zealousness by going and persecuting and killing and imprisoning Christians because it was a threat to what he had dedicated his whole life to. And now Saul becomes Paul. And now Paul is using that freedom. He understands something that we have lost now, 2000 plus years later, living in a different culture, a different time that now we don't understand what that means. We don't understand what the freedom of law means. It's a freedom to do more for Christ. But unfortunately, we so often use that freedom to do less. We use that freedom to withdraw. We use the freedom to find excuses not to worship Christ with our all. Peter Verhoff said, The law is in every respect a pointer to and a prophecy of the new order of life which only Christ can inaugurate. The law declares only one day out of 7 to be holy unto the Lord. The spirit sanctifies all 7 of them. The law sets apart one tribe out of the 12 to be priests. The spirit declares that the whole congregation has to fulfill the priestly office, 1 Peter 2:9. The law demands a 10th part of his people's possession. The Spirit translates, translates us to become God's possession with all that we have. Everything belongs to Him. We are but stewards who will have to give account of all we possess. James 2, 12-13 says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been Merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This freedom that we have been given allows us to do more for Christ. This freedom that we have been given allows us to go and to live in a world and to demonstrate to people what it is to know Christ. That he became the punishment for our sins. That he became the the punishment for us, that he defeated sin and death so that we don't have to when we put our faith in him. If that doesn't drive us to complete thankfulness, if that doesn't drive us to gratitude, if that doesn't drive us to want to do more for him as our savior, maybe we need to spend more time going to his word, going to who he is, going to the worship that is due him. So, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, the common sense response is to give everything to him and to be that living sacrifice for him. Matthew 22, Jesus is asked by the Pharisees again and the scribes. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34 says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Again, Jesus uses that law and the prophets to get them to understand the Pharisees. What you've added doesn't count. It wasn't from me. It was from you. But all the law and the prophets can be summarized in these two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. The Pharisees and the scribes didn't recognize the Messiah they so desperately waited for when he was standing in front of them. And to love other people was beyond them. Remember, they hated people and justified it. When we love God, we love others. And when we love others, we love God. They go hand in hand, but we can't properly love others until we properly love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Not until we realize all that God has done for us can we begin to comprehend and we will fall in worship. We will fall in service of God. I'm so thankful that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets, that Jesus has become our righteousness. Our prayer is that you, if you have never made that decision to follow him, that you understand if you're trying to work at being good enough to go to heaven, you never will. If you're trying to just look better than everybody else around you, thinking that will serve its purpose, it won't. God told us that God looks in the heart of a person, not on the outward appearance so that's why we ask you, if you've never made that decision to follow Christ, that you would call out to him, ask Him to forgive your sins, that you would turn your heart and your mind over to him, knowing that when he comes in and he gives you the Holy Spirit to work in your life and to start to transform you into his image, the outward automatically changes. But what about you, believer? What about you, disciple of Christ? Where are you? What parts of your life are you still holding back from? What parts of your life are you using that freedom to Stay away from having to follow Christ with your all, with your everything. Are you being a living sacrifice for him? He became the ultimate sacrifice for you so that we could worship him under this freedom. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity we have to come to your word, to celebrate you, to worship you. Lord, that you gave us your word so that we can properly understand the worship that is due you but also understand how grateful we can be for all that you have done our doing and promise you will continue to do in our lives. That you didn't leave us by ourselves, but you gave us your word and your spirit so that we can know you, that we can have that personal relationship with you, so that we can know forgiveness, that we can know joy, that we can know freedom, that we can know a perfect love. Lord, I pray that you continue to work in our hearts and our minds. That we would seek to glorify you in all that we do. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.